Hi everyone, Tom from Spiked here. Before we get into this week's episode, I've got a very exciting announcement for you all. Spiked is now officially in the publishing business. We're delighted to say that we're partnering with John Wilkes Publishing to produce a series of books about the maddening times that we find ourselves in, and we couldn't have picked a better book to start with. This is How Woke One, the latest book by Spike's Joanna Williams, all about the woke takeover of all of our institutions and how we as members of the public might fight back against it. It's out for pre-order now. You can go and claim your copy at Amazon or go to the Spike website to find out more. And to celebrate the release of How Woke One, we're having an extra special live edition of Brendan O'Neill's podcast, The Brendan O'Neill Show. Joanna will be joining him for a conversation on Monday the 16th of May at 7pm. If you're a Spike supporter, you can claim a free ticket to this event now at the Spike Supporters Hub. If you're not a Spike supporter, now's a very good time to sign up. Just £5 per month and you can claim your ticket to this event as well as enjoy plenty other perks as well. And tickets will also go on general sale very soon if there are any left. So that's How Woke One. Go and pre-order your copy now and get your ticket for that live Zoom edition of Brenda's podcast. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week as ever we have Spike's editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the Twitter meltdown over Elon Musk, the French elections, plus Angela Rayner and the return of Pestminster. So billionaire Elon Musk has purchased Twitter for $44 billion. Musk is known as a bit of a free speech absolutist. And I think it's fair to say that his possible intention of making Twitter a bit less censorious has elicited something of a meltdown. So I'm going to give you a bit of a flavour of uh, what's being said. Actress Jamila Jamil, friend of the show, posted her last tweet. I fear this free speech bid is going to help this hell platform reach its final form of totally lawless hate, bigotry and misogyny. Sean King, the BLM activist, said that this takeover was all about white power. The man was raised in apartheid by a white nationalist. He's upset that Twitter won't allow white nationalists to target slash harass people. That's his definition of free speech. If anyone knows anything about white people, it's Sean King. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, comedian Kathy Griffin said that Musk is a Piers Morgan level. <laughs> Musk is a Piers Morgan level media thirsty, vindictive white supremacist who is looking to convince you he is an innovative disruptor. Now, Tom, it, it feels clearer than ever that what they're really afraid of is free speech. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what it's all about, really. And it's not just the kind of usual suspects as well, the kind of more histrionic, ridiculous people. Um, you've seen, you know, various kind of campaign organisations, even kind of human rights organisations, yeah. interestingly. Amnesty, Amnesty International is one example, okay. um, which have come out and said that this is essentially a threat to democracy. Mm. They've got it into their heads that the possibility, in my view, potentially quite slight possibility that this one platform would get a little more pro-free speech is basically a threat to civilization. Um, and obviously we go from one wave of hysteria to another at the moment, like it's hard to keep up really. Mm. This was a particularly special one, but still. But I think it, it, the reason that it was so over the top is because of the fact that um, somewhere along the line and Trump and Brexit had to have a lot to do with it, they've really come to the view that everything that's wrong in society is because people have too much freedom to speak their minds on the internet yeah, or too much freedom to access stuff on the internet, which their tiny minds won't be able to process. So that's what this takeover is about. Some people try and dress it up as we're against billionaires owning the flow of information. They didn't care about that two weeks ago. Um, that's what it's about. It's about mm. the free speech question, definitely. 
Yeah, I mean, it is strange that no one or not that many people objected to the billionaire ownership of uh, Twitter when it was owned by BlackRock, Morgan Stanley, you know, yeah. Prince Talal of Saudi Arabia yeah. owns a big share in Twitter. That didn't seem to bother people. <laughs> it seems to be that Elon Musk, who's uh, an alleged or self-professed free speech guy, is the problem. Yeah, of course, when Twitter was owned by, you know, top guy in Saudi Arabia, that was that was a perfect world in which, you know, freedom and democracy was core values of the Twitter top board. It is really ridiculous. And there was also this kind of slut, you know, you, you, you have to revel in the moments of hypocrisy because mm. there are all these people saying, um, I can't believe it. I won't, you know, like Jill and Jamila Jamil, who I'm glad she's left Twitter because she's extremely annoying. Um, people saying, this is going to be a platform that I can't bear to be on anymore. Mm. And you really want to say, oh, well, set up your own platform then. Like what <laughs> they said in relation to everyone who are like us, who were complaining about some of the more stringent regulations on Twitter um, censoring speech. But all of that aside, I mean, the thing about Elon Musk is he is neither going to be the godsend for free speech nor the devil for creating some kind of anarchy of hate speech on mm. social media. There are, I think you have to welcome a bit of a shakeup within this, uh, this thing, Twitter, that has, as we've said on this podcast many times, become very important to public discourse. It's become a very important tool that m most, if not all politicians use quite seriously. Yeah. So it's something that, that, you know, has a lot of political weight, you know, a shakeup in that, maybe some of the things he's suggesting around uh, stopping shadow bans, talking about algorithms, all that kind of stuff. I, I think it might do something good. On the other hand, you know, he himself has got some problems. He's what in his uh, statement, he uh, raised a few people's eyebrows, mine included, were talking about the desire to authenticate all humans, which mm. a lot of people took as a, a this kind of move to rule out anonymity, which is a kind of lazy thing that I think lots of people use to say, I'm going to clean up Twitter by stopping anonymous bots, but completely undermines the, you know, radical revolutionary purposes that people use anonymity for, for, you know, political acts or indeed, you know, people not wanting to put their, um, their job or something on the line when they're discussing things on Twitter. So there's ups and downs, mm. but it's been, what, it's been like 48 hours or something. <laughs> he hasn't, he hasn't really done anything. And there's lots of people coming now online and saying, Oh, and I've suddenly gained 3000 followers or I've suddenly lost 3000 followers. And you just want to say, calm down. Let's see what comes out in the wash. Yeah. But it's, it's neither going to be the kind of like the bullet or the savior of free speech. I think we should watch a clip um, of one MSNBC pundit who has some quite big fears about what could happen next. You own all of Twitter or Facebook or what have you. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't even have to be transparent. You could secretly ban one party's candidate or all of its candidates, all of its <laughs> nominees, or you could just secretly turn down the reach of their stuff and turn up the reach of something else. And the rest of us might not even find out about it till after the election. Elon Musk says this is all to help people because he is just a free speech, philosophically clear, open-minded helper. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Tom, would that be a new thing? That's, he's describing Twitter, is it currently? <laughs> I mean, that, it's incredible. I mean, especially, and this is an important point, actually, because when, when we're talking about um, this sort of censorship that's been going on on Twitter and other platforms in recent years, it really has been genuinely sinister. I mean, mm. the way in which it came to a head during the 2020 election, First of all, with the Hunter Biden laptop scandal, this story, you know, very scandalous for the Democrats and really actually calling to question the ethics of the Democratic candidate, now president himself, and a story which has since been stood up as true, dismissed as 
Russian propaganda, basically, yeah. by various different democratic organs. And then you had both Twitter and Facebook actively suppress it, kick the New York Post, whose scoop it was, out of their accounts. I mean, that's generally putting your thumb on the scale mm. in a really meaningful way. And then, of course, eventually you end up with booting the sitting president of the United States, the Republican candidate, off of the entire platform, which yeah. raises very big questions if he does end up actually running again. And it's amazing that all of these people have suddenly realised the potential peril with when you have the control over the flow of information in so few hands. And on the flip side, though, it also reminds us that it's a really dreadful position that we're in, that the state of free speech online effectively rests on which billionaire owns which platform. Do we mm. like them or not? <laughs> Do they align vaguely with what it is that we happen to believe? Um, and so I, I agree with Ella. I think it, you know, a shake-up is good. If nothing else, it's flushed out all of the hypocrites and all of the ridiculousness of their arguments. But it does show how fragile free mm. speech is in the 21st century when so much of the way in which you as an individual can materially kind of um, exercise that right, particularly in politics in general, is through the internet. That's where a lot of politics happens these days. Um, and again, is you know, is Elon Musk coming to the rescue really going to solve the problem? Of course not, even on its own terms, but also doesn't get to grips with the core issue, which is that these spaces are monopolised by oligarchs at the end. Of the day. Absolutely. And for those of us in the UK or people in Europe, you know, let's not forget that there are other laws that, um, you know, suppress free speech online. We were talking last week about the case of the, you know, Grenfell effigy, a man being arrested and, you know, just escaping prison for sending a grossly offensive video around to his friends on WhatsApp. We've got the online safety bill coming up in the UK. I mean, Musk or no Musk, free speech is in peril. Yeah, there's been lots of people joking online about, although, I mean, it could become reality, about the prospect of Nadine Dorries having to interrogate Elon Musk at some kind mm. of parliamentary committee. They love and <laughs> The kind of weird spectacle that that would be. They often end up being like kind of long tech support sessions. Uh, yeah. Various <laughs> representatives confused as to how any of these things well, people, actually work. People anyway. were joking about Nadine Dorries calling him Alan Musk or something, but that was in relation to some <laughs> screw-up she had that was pretty unpleasant. But the, you know, it is the case that uh, Musk can do to a certain extent what he likes, but he will be answerable to the laws within each mm. uh, nation state that Twitter operates. And in particular in the UK, the kind of regulations that the online safety bill are suggesting would bring in would basically mean having him bent over backwards to clamp down on all the things that he's saying he would allow to happen. So, you know, this whole legal but harmful speech, um, certainly the way that the uh, both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party, but the current government are going in relation to um, approaches to the discussion around gender, mm. it's very likely that you're not going to see much of a change, at least in this country, in relation to um, gender critical or gender abolitionist feminists talking about biological sex. And we know that we've covered this many times on the podcast of being not just silence kicked off Twitter, but also arrested. So the extent to which he'll be able to change any of that is very limited. And I think it, it's just a reminder to people that the, you know, we've we've always made this point that the issue of censorship and the fight for free speech cannot be gifted to you by, by a billionaire in this mm -hmm. case. Um, it has to be part of a cultural change, which is from the top to the bottom. So yes, changing some rules on Twitter very welcome. Let's see what, what it does. But it also will mean, you know, 
that there has to be a sort of atmospheric change in the desire of people to want to report things. So you have mm. to gonna get get a genuine sense of a fight for free speech within Twitter users themselves so that you stop people running to the police or running to the government to, and you stop politicians having this knee-jerk reaction to, I don't like something, let's see if we can put it in law to ban it. And I think it has to be that kind of holistic approach rather than just almost dare I say it, kind of lazily waiting for someone else, whether mm. it's Musk or whoever, to fix it for you. Yeah. And also, I mean, is there not also the problem of the culture in Silicon Valley more generally? I mean, a lot of Twitter employees have been quoted mm. in the Washington Post, the New York Times saying they feel sick um, at Musk taking over. They're, you know, horrified by this kind of regime mm. change, um, not, you know, not being able to clamp down on hate speech or whatever it is. I mean, that culture in Silicon Valley, you know, is going to take a lot to change too. Now, there's a real open question as to whether or not it'll actually be able to do a lot of these things because of some of these internal and external um, pressures that will come under. I mean, it, it was almost the kind of internal revolt of Twitter has been fascinating. And that's actually one part of the old big tech censorship story we don't often talk about, which is how so much of this is coming kind of internally. Mm. Like Mark Zuckerberg doesn't really want to get into the censorship game if for nothing else for self-interest. You don't want to become yeah. the referee. Um, a lot of the pressure was obviously external, politics, the media, but it was also internal as well. You've got a lot of people who just work there who would, again, kind of down tools often over mm. a particular account not being censored or Trump not being clamped down on hard enough. So there's all of that kind of cultural issue. And I think it reminds us, and this whole hilarious meltdown has demonstrated it perfectly kind of across the American ruling class in general, is that they censorship is genuinely essential to them at this point. They yeah. can't let it go. Like even in the land of the First Amendment, they found this very powerful way to essentially outsource censorship to the private sector via these companies. And they're terrified of anyone loosening their grip on it. It was like we we're talking about at the beginning. They're scared of free speech. They're really terrified of in the same way that you had the kind of democracy scare as Thomas Frank talks about it in his book around Trump. The flip side of that is this free speech scare, the disinformation, the bots, all these idiots being able to sound off and all the rest of it. They have genuinely convinced themselves that like free speech and democracy are a threat to civilization mm. rather than actually being like the basis of civilization. <laughs> and that's not going to go away anytime soon. So I think that a big part of this question going forward is will Elon Musk even be able to do anything given all of the, given that's the state of play at the moment. So on Sunday, Emmanuel Macron was re-elected president of France. For a lot of outside observers, particularly in Britain and Europe, this was taken as a kind of vindication of the European Union, a huge victory for technocratic centrism, all that is good and holy in the mm. world. I mean, Tom, there's another way of looking at this election, isn't there? Of course there is. It's the um, hard right candidate getting the best showing the hard right has ever experienced in the history of the Fifth Republic. Yeah. I mean, not quite within striking distance of the presidency, but certainly very, very close. I mean, national rally has become a core feature of French politics in mm. a way that would be unthinkable 10, 15 years ago. And the same is the case with a lot of right-wing populism across Europe, full stop. I mean, we saw this in 2017 where Macron wins, and obviously he trounced Le Pen that time around, yeah. uh, much more decisive. And the response from the sort of technocratic elite was like they just dodged a bullet, like it was a one-time thing, it's over. And it was obviously not going to be the case, mm. particularly because in the figure of Macron, you have the kind of perfect embodiment, really, of what so many voters are frustrated about the haughtiness, that kind of um, elitism, the technocracy, the idea that you've got to keep ordinary people out of politics, and also just his general kind of high-handedness. Yeah. You know, all of the incredible quotables that have come out in recent years of him telling people you only have to cross the road to go and get 
a job, you know, talking about there are people who are successes in life and there are people who are nothing. Um, (laughs) It's no wonder why he um, really became the catalyst via his fuel taxes for the whole Gilets Jaunes revolt, Mm. um, which as we might get into is probably going to kick back into gear in some form in the wake of him winning this time around. But again, you see that same kind of wishful thinking. Um, which is good in a sense because I think it demonstrates that they've still got no idea what it is they're up against. Now, is Le Pen getting that close to the Elysee a good thing? Of course not. But I think it also speaks to the fact that there has been a failure amongst other sections of politics, particularly the left, although France is a little bit different in that respect, to engage with this kind of populist Mm. atmosphere at all. It's always been to scorn it rather than to try and cultivate it and try and send it in a quite positive direction, which I think via something like the Yellow Vest Revolt, you saw that what a lot of people are calling out is basically for representation, is for yeah. democracy, it's for them having a say. That could have really been harnessed, not by Macron, but by mm. something else. And yet again, we're in a position where, if anything, Macron has made the kind of the hard right be able to solidify itself because it's at the moment in France the only kind of large force which is um, at least willing to even try to tap into that kind of thing even if it does do some quite malign things with it if you see what I mean. Yeah I mean it's become the you know obvious receptacle for a lot of people's people's anger but you know the the soil there for something positive and progressive is really there. I mean you know lots of French people are completely fed up with um, elite Parisian politics. They think that politicians like Macron are in it for people like them like themselves you know not interested in ordinary people a lot of people f- feel quite frustrated in that France is a, a country in decline as well. So there's, you know, there's a kind of simmering anger. And unfortunately, you know, Marine Le Pen has been the most successful at scooping that up. And other, you know, perhaps more progressive forces haven't been able to do the same. I mean, Ella, what have you made of it? Yeah, well, I think one, of, it would really be a miss of Macron not to be able to learn a lesson from this election. But he did, like Tom says, mm. he didn't learn from 2017. It's been Pretty you almost admire his ability to double down. Yeah, yeah. It's, been, and it's been pretty much a rerun of that, if not more start, yeah. and, and the stakes higher, and there's no sign of him um, taking on board what threat he faced, or actually, to put it in a, in a more sort of a less salacious way, the difference of opinion within French society and French citizens that he wasn't the, the landslide um, candidate, that there was this significant portion of people who have some very real qualms with his... Um, policies and the way that he runs the country, but and and none of that's going to happen. And even taking into account the fact that you know, I know that French turnout is it's odd for us to interpret it because it's so much larger than we ever um, experience in in the seventies. But it was the lowest in fifty three years, yeah. which tells you something about the and you know and that um, abstent not just abstentions but spoiled ballots were very high. So it tells you something about the discontent within not just the choice, but within the whole kind of nature of French politics. There was a great article by Charles Develen in Spiked this week that looked at the, you know, made this really interesting point about the gilets jaunes in that you have this kind of um, sort of almost messy populist kind of movement in France where no one was really, in a kind of positive way, no one was really able to capture it at the start. It didn't, do, you know, the, the Gilets jaunes, it, because they were, the way they organised, didn't declare themselves as p- party political. They weren't left, they weren't right. There were all this kind of mishmash. Mm. But then in the, you know, the, he talked about the fact that the difference between them and previous sort of unruly movements was that they actually vote, they didn't abstain, they voted. And so large sections of them voted for Le Pen, but also significant sections um, voted for Mélenchon. And 
that fact should really hit home with Macron because it wasn't like they were just saying, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Yeah. But they were invested in the democratic process. But the thing, the reason why Macron won't recognize it is not just because he's cowardly, but because I think that section of the kind of technocratic EU loving European elite have decided that any opposition to their technocratic EU loving position is just beyond the pale. It's yeah. not even about Le Pen's migration policies, which, you know, all of us think are um, are disagreeable, to put it lightly. It's about you're not on board with my technocratic way yeah. of doing things. And so la, 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 la. And the more that they, you know, and the, the most ridiculous thing is this is at the same time as them putting out the message that we cannot let the far right rise in Europe. This is this sort of yeah. existential threat. We must do everything we can. And you think, well, if you want to do something about the rise of the far right in Europe, which none of us are happy about, how about you start listening to some of the people who are criticizing you? There's this, you know, obviously you have to have losers consent in an election mm. and no one is saying that he should completely rip up his you know, election promises and take on board what the other side think. But some kind of recognition that he needs to change for example, on the most basic level, his economic policies uh, moves, you know, listen to the Gilets Jaunes or listen to those people who voted for Le Pen and, and Mélenchon. But because he's an arrogant little Pluto and also because he embodies this whole um, extremely elitist form of yeah. European modern politics, he won't do that. I mean, he's, he's funny because it's not only are his opponents racist and, you know, that they're also lazy and yeah. illiterate and, you know, everything else under the sun. Mm. I mean, he has got another tough five years ahead of him. He just went out for his first um, post-election appearance and he's had tomatoes thrown at him. Yeah. He's got the cost of living crisis going on. People are going to protest against his attempts to reform pensions because they know they're going to lose out from it. Yeah. Um, you know, this is not going to be smooth sailing, even if, you know, the Brussels set have got a bit of a reprieve for five years. No, exactly. And what happens after Macron is a really fascinating yeah. question because um, on Marsh, named after him, um, is a... A one man band, really. Mm. I mean, you know, it got people elected last time around, but at the same time, there's no viable alternative candidate. If you think about the old parties of the establishment, what did they get like 7% together in the first round of this presidential election? They're nowhere to be seen. So all of the complacency is so incredibly misplaced. Um, it's interesting, I suppose, on the, just on the question of Melanchon, which I think is interesting as well, because I think what we're also looking at here is really the limits of left populism mm. as a response to all of this, or at least as it's been currently practiced. I mean, this is something that's been, you know, when particularly when the kind of Eurozone crisis was kicking off and just in the wake of the economic crash, there was a kind of sense that maybe it was left populism that was going to, you know, win the day. You know, they were talking about streets are in Greece and then Podemos in Spain and again, um, Mélenchon in France and people... Jeremy Corbyn in Britain. Yeah, which around is... Around that kind of time. It was a slight more complicated in some <laughs> respects. But still, yeah, I mean, it would be talked about in that break. Burn, people, some people talk about Bernie Sanders in the same sort of way. And yet they've kind of failed time and time again. Mm. I think Mélenchon is an interesting case because he's very explicitly wanting to try and engage with this sort of left populist platform he would associate with kind of left populist political philosophers and all this sort of stuff. Try to kind of move it beyond just... Um, you know, just the kind of old cell of the far left, if you like, to something more based on citizenship and yeah. all this sort of stuff. Um, but at the same time, he has sort of failed. And you can't help but, especially with the yellow vests in, in this discussion, see that it's, again, it's the attachment to still some of these kind of dead elite orthodoxies that still a lot of these left-wingers have, which is one of the things that's doing it for them. You know, mm -hmm. he really wanted to be essentially the, the most radical green candidate. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're just had five years or several years, I should say, 
of people taking to the streets en masse against petty green taxes, yeah. how is that going to work? So I think it just shows that that even the attempt so far at kind of a left populist response has always been hamstrung by the fact that on so many issues, it's still beholden to some of the most punishing elite orthodoxies of the day, if you like. And until that changes, uh, it's going to be difficult for any of those types of characters to get a look in anytime soon, I think. Several anonymous Tory MPs have claimed that Labour's deputy leader is using her legs to distract Prime Minister Boris Johnson during PMQs. And this was reported in the Mail on Sunday, which made a comparison with Rayner and that infamous scene with Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct. Now, this is, I think it's fair to say people have condemned this story for good reason. Mm. On the one hand, I mean, what have you made of it? It's just sexist shit. It's just the worst kind of crap, worst kind of gutter press gossip. Um, but most importantly, the uh, you know uh, the outrage against it from top to bottom, from all sides of uh, sensible society, politicians, commentators, normal people reading the paper and looking at everyone thinks it is you know silly at best and disgusting at worst. So you know. What's the big deal? You know, the Mail on Sunday has a bit of a history for trying to uh, stir up um, parliamentary gossip. This is kind of what they do. Um, they have these, they report these kind of whispers. I think people have sort of forgotten in the whole wash of things over the last 72 hours that it was, that it's Tory MPs who have briefed the, yeah. the paper rather than the paper making this up themselves. Um, although, you know, the going with the whole Sharon Stone picture mm. might have been pushing it a little bit. And their claim is that um, Raina herself has joked and admitted to this being yeah, particular. Yeah, it's, it's like... What if it's true? It's, <laughs> it's just all these, it's like, you know, what? who knows what's going on? Is the what true sexist element? Yeah. <laughs> but it's, the thing is, there has been this sort of doubly ridiculous response to it. On the one hand, you've, I have to admit, I've been pretty uh, red in the face by some of the discussion among the anti-woke crowd who have responded to this by saying, this is just about sartorial standards. Um, you know, <laughs> if you if you flash thigh in the houses of parliament, you are disrespecting the queen and blah, blah, blah. And that's just, you know, that's kind of worse sexism, actually, because it's suggesting that Rayner really was so, as the Mail on Sunday's write-up made out, is such a thick council estate kind of uneducated idiot that all she has is her legs and her boobs um, to use for political power in parliament. And lots of women will have, uh, you know, experienced that. It's one of those things that I think lots of us just think, yeah, I know what that's like. What what a bunch of idiots. But on the other hand, putting that to one side, there was this crazy response, really actually even worse response um, from lots of politicians and commentators to say, this is, look, look, this is it. This proves that the whole of society, not just the House of Commons, is a cesspit of misogyny, women yeah. hating horror. And how can we even be expected to leave the house when this is going on? And you this, just think, please, I mean, calm down to use a sexist, you know, <laughs> quote that down, David dear, Cameron yeah, thing. Down, you just dear. think, Jesus, it's get like a grip. I mean, Angela Rayner herself said, women in politics fake sexism and misogyny every day and they're no different. But I mean, the very fact of the reaction that everyone condemned it showed that this is not yeah. normal, surely. I mean, I mean, it was a, in a way, it was a gift to everyone concerned, to be brutally honest, because, yeah. you know, you, Angela Rayner gets to make a 
big issue about this, as is a right to reply to this particular story. Uh, Boris Johnson uses this as an opportunity to burnish his already considerable feminist credentials uh, <laughs> to say he would unleash the furies of the earth in order to find out the Tory MP responsible. And it's so mortifying for him because it's basically, <laughs> you are such a pathetic loser that Look, you can't keep it in your pants when someone's leg flashes. It's like, God. Also, if you're someone like Boris Johnson, he's respected women his entire life. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, no, but it's but what I mean is it becomes this kind of performance. Mm. You start off with a silly, crappy, sexy story, and it suddenly becomes a situation for everyone to just sort of hand ring about the dreadfulness of misogyny, how it taints everything and political life, and it keeps women out of politics, all the rest of it. It just becomes a bit overblown. And the problem is, is that you then, as as you were talking about, Ellie, you see this kind of overreaction, which people thinking nothing of. First of all, the speaker, you know, calling in the editor of the Mail on Sunday and its political editors to talk about this particular piece, uh, them refusing, rightly mm. so, I would say. A, a bit of a lack of solidarity from other journalists, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Or we were kind of split politically, to be brutally frank. They sh- you know, this is a recurring thing happening with Leveson as well, where people are just very quiet when things like that happen because they feel like, you know, they're basically on one side of this particular argument. Um, and on top of that, you've now heard calls from like Caroline Noakes, so, you know, I mean, doesn't really have much bearing on anything what Caroline Noakes says, to be honest, but still calling for his past to be rescinded. You think, how did we get to this particular place? So again, it's like something can be bad, yeah. but it doesn't have to be something that you talk about all week. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to be to me that we don't always get that balance right these days. Now, obviously it's been moved on in yeah. so many respects since, um, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but still, you know, can we not just, can, can we not just say that shit, move on? Yeah. Rather than all this bloodletting, I don't know. And, and I suppose so, I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> you but. would say that. And maybe the press should be allowed to print what they like. I mean, that's, yeah. uh, that seems like what a an outrageous thing, claim, <laughs> right? Without the interference of Parliament, and you know, I mean, Lindsay, also, there's, and there's always a difficult line, isn't there? With yeah. things that are just sort of like silly gossip and things that overstep the line in, into something else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's it's. It, this is why it's for editors to decide and readers to judge, not for parliament or anyone else absolutely i mean it was a bit worrying when hoyle said you know that editors and journalists should think about the feelings of mps now i understand in relation to this particular story it's not very nice and you know (laughs) it probably if any other editor wouldn't have done it probably but you know it's quite it could set a chilling effect Mm. right for the speaker of the house to say that kind of thing it's also i mean you've made this point a couple of times um previously fraser i remember you making the point about gossip and the importance of being allowing gossip with a free press which is things that can seem you know in this case no i don't think any intelligent editor really would have published this ridiculous um whisper or would at least have included something in the article that says some people think that this might be a load of bollocks or that this might be <laughs> i think, that, I think know, there was a denial at the bottom of it but you know we all yeah, know there was there was but, the, but then they can count on the outrage as well that's the other thing yeah. that's the an thing incentive about, in itself in some mm, ways yeah but. the thing about you know reporting gossip is that had this been I don't know, you know, gossip about an affair or gossip about Mm. someone fiddling the expense forms or things like that. That would upset an MP. That Mm. might hurt their feelings. Uh, You know, some of the stuff that's come out recently about the question of a, you know, the Tory's having a terrible time at the moment, Tory MP allegedly watching pornography in the House of Commons, in the chamber with other people looking and what I can only imagine is some kind of, um, you know, attempt to get jollies off and get caught. Um, you know, th- would, should you not publish that in case it hurts their feelings? Yeah. If it is, if it is true, and um, you know, embarrasses them. I mean, th- journalistic freedom isn't just about publishing what's kind of safe to publish. It's also publishing stuff that pushes the boundaries if it's of public interest, or even if you just want to cause a stir. Where you know, 
mentioning the kind of the overreaction, the other thing that happened was Harriet Harman, who actually I was in a green room with um, when all this stuff broke out. And I said to her, well, what do you think about Lindsay Hall? And she said, yes, well, I care about press freedom, but I really think the, the important point is that the MPs should be reprimanded. And this is what she's come out with, this suggestion yeah, that yeah. actually what should happen is that if any MP briefs the wrong way or if yeah. any MP says something misogynistic, that they should then have their privileges revoked or indeed be disciplined. And you just think... You can hear all the parliamentary journalists in the country sighing um, because, you know, the whole nature of the way in which MPs brief journalists and have that kind of relationship is it has to be informal. Mm. It has to be free flowing because that's how we, the public, find out about things that all the whips and the people within the party try to shut up. So there is, you know, you know, it's also the case that what Harriet Harman thinks is misogynistic and what I think is misogynistic is two very different things. And I'm not misogynist, by the way. So it's a real... It's <laughs> Thank a, you for clarifying that. <laughs> yeah, but it's a real mess. And it just shows that, you know, rather than having a reasonable response and celebrating the fact that lots of people yeah. oppose the idea that a woman should be judged for what she wears in such an important place as Parliament, rather than saying, look how ignorant the Mail on Sunday is and look how great the British public and all of us are, move on, don't buy the paper if you don't want to. Instead, it gets turned into this completely overblown thing, which I don't think will go away in the next few days because mm. even with this porn stuff, rather yeah, than it yeah. just being one sick individual, it will turn into a, this is what's wrong with the whole country and their approach to yeah. women. Which and, and it's reheated, it's reheated Pestminster as well, which was what started, what, five, five years ago? Five years ago, off. November, and, 2017. And also what gets thrown into the, the, I think that's the problem with a lot of this is that everything gets thrown into the same pot, right? Mm. Shitty sexist story in the mail on Sunday, one thing. But then suddenly it also becomes this bizarre story of watching porn in the House of Commons. Um, but then it then becomes this question of Pestminster, which as we remember, there was a big sliding scale, yeah. you know, through to sort of like starting with kind of clumsy come-ons, essentially, right up through to serious allegations of sexual assault. Some Tory MPs who have um, since actually been convicted of rape and child sexual assault um, over the, in recent years. All of this gets just put into the same pot mm. in a way that doesn't really shed much light on any of the individual issues involved, if you see what I mean. But I think that the problem is it's just a large part of the... It, there's just a narrative around that um, misogyny is so intense within not just... Westminster, but society more broadly, yeah. that all of it just gets stitched together to the point where you can't really have a clear eyed discussion about any of it individually. And that becomes a big problem as well on its own terms, I think. As well as, while some of these questions are important, some of it is just Westminster liking to talk about itself, yeah. to be brutally frank. And it's hard to separate out those two sometimes as well. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday, and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.